I thought about thanking Kent and you guys for that song, and I decided not to. <laughs> hey, let's pray again for just a second. Lord, um, it's your spirit that gives us the ability to perceive truth and to see you more clearly. It's your spirit, Lord, that communicates to us something more of the life of Christ that opens our minds, that helps us grow, that takes in truth like water up the roots of a plant. And I'd ask that you would help us this morning to take in more of your truth, to become more the people you mean us to be, Lord, to present more of the life of your Son in us, in Jesus' name, amen. This is not quite a Christmas teaching this morning, though it'll touch on the Christmas topic, certainly the Incarnation. How many here had O. Henry stories in your literature classes in junior high or high school? Or How many here know who O. Henry is? Wow. Um, o. Henry, sort of the most famous of the short story authors in American history. So maybe go back and read some short stories or something. Anyway, uh, O. Henry was a prolific writer of short stories about 100 years ago. And he wrote tons of them. He made a pretty good living in his day by writing these. My favorite of his short stories is called The Gift of the Magi. And in this story, set around the Christmas time, there's a young couple named Jim and Della. And Jim and Della love each other, you know, head over heels in love, young couple, probably like Matt and Jessica, you know, no faults in each other, it's all good, it's all upside. And it's Christmas season and they, they value each other, they love each other, and they really want to get some, each other some gift that expresses how much they value the other. The trouble, of course, is they're poor. And times are kind of like they are now. They were tough, and economics were bad for the country and for them personally. And so the question becomes, what do I have that I can give to my spouse that represents how much I value them? Now, the truth is they each have something that they value very highly, that they take pride and joy in. And in the case of Della, the wife, it's her beautiful, long, brown hair. And in the case of the husband, Jim... It's the gold watch he has from his father who got it from his grandfather. So they don't have a nickel to their name sort of on one hand, but they each have something that they highly value. So Della's going she's determined, I'm going to get Jim something that, that will really bless him and show him how much I love him. So before she can change her mind, she runs out and she runs to a place that does hair products. And she sells the glorious hair off her head for $20. She takes that $20, she runs down to the store, and she gets a platinum chain, a fob, that will be connected to Jim's watch so that he won't be embarrassed anymore about the the dingy leather thing he's got connected to it now. And Jim, of course, he feels the same way about Della that she does about him, so he's only got one thing in the world of any value either. So he, of course, takes that gold watch, and he goes and sells it. And he buys her, I'm giving this away when you read the story, it didn't come up quite this early, giving it away here. But So he buys her these tortoiseshell combs, which she's going to put in her long, glorious brown hair. So he comes home, and she shows him the chain, 
And she doesn't know what to make of his response. And she's trying to read him and not quite figuring him out. And then he says, well, you know, she's got short curls on her hair, no long hair left. He's got a chain for a watch that doesn't exist in his life anymore. And she's got combs for hair that doesn't exist in her life anymore. But O. Henry's conclusion at the end of the story was that these were the wisest of givers, this young couple. They were like the Magi. They knew what was of worth. And they gave what they valued most to each other. And there was some irony there, of course, because now they couldn't really use the gifts, but the gifts represented the love they had for each other. So O. Henry said, these were the true Magi. Encourages us to give like them. And I say all this to just sort of set the scene and ask the question this morning, uh, what would you do for love? What would you do for love of someone else? And to what degree does love form the motivation in your life or mine in the way we think about other people? It could be our spouse, could be our child, could be our parent, could be the unlovely people down the street from us or across the aisle in church from us. What does love look like? What does the motivation of love look like in our life? And you know, ultimately, uh, love is the motivating factor behind the gift that we think about at Christmas, Lord willing, as Christians. The ultimate gift in the universe was given by God the Father in the person of His Son for us, a motivation of love. It was the best, most costly gift ever given. And that kind of love and that kind of giving and that kind of heart of sacrifice, giving out of love, is what should be the mainspring of the Christian life, yours and mine. We're going to be in Genesis 22 again this morning. Genesis 22, say on the outset here again, one of the clearest pictures in all the scriptures of God the Father giving Jesus the Son for us. It's not just the story of Abraham and Isaac. We are meant to read this and see a depiction, an analogy, a story, people in flesh and blood who illuminate, who give us a clear perspective of what it meant for God the Father to give out of love this costly sacrificial gift of His Son for us. If you remember in the first three verses of Genesis 22... God the Father tested Abraham, said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go up to the place called Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to me. And that's where we pick up this morning, Genesis 22, verses 4 through 14. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. God will provide. Guys, I'm going to digress twice this morning just to cover some bases on a couple topics that are mentioned in this passage just to do some justice because they're brought up here and because you'll read them in the Old Testament elsewhere later and the first of those is point one if you have a study sheet related to Moriah uh, related to the geography the place where this story occurs is important in the Bible Uh, Mount Moriah looms large in the history of redemption in Abraham's life, and then in the lives of his descendants. And I just want to mention a couple of those. Verse 4 tells us three days, Abraham, servants, and Isaac walked three days, about 50 miles from down in the south around Beersheba up to Mount Moriah. And just on the front end, Mount Moriah is essentially, it'd be the southeast hill that the city of Jerusalem is built on. That's Mount Moriah. And we know this, I won't make a defense of this too much this morning, But there are scriptural links that identify one to the other so we know exactly where this is. So if you go back in Abraham's story to Genesis 14, do you remember that we met this character we weren't quite sure what to make of named Melchizedek? And his name meant the king of righteousness and he's the king of Salem whose name gets changed later to Jerusalem which is the place that Mount Moriah is located. So the king of righteousness whose city name means peace, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, comes out to Abraham in Genesis 14 and brings him bread and wine. And on the day we looked at this, we talked about the symbols that we use for communion today were presented by the king of righteousness to Abraham outside the city of Jerusalem. That's the same area of Mount Moriah. So we've already seen this in Abraham's story. Later on, when you're reading through your Bible in your quiet time every morning, as I know you all do, 1 Chronicles 21, you'll see this character that we'll see here this morning later called the angel of the Lord. And in 1 Chronicles 21, this also, the story is also in 2 Samuel 24, I believe. In 1 Chronicles 21, God is disciplining David because he took a census of Israel that he was not supposed to. And God gave him some choices for his punishment. And David said, I'll fall into your hands, Lord. And God's choice was a plague. And 70,000 people in Israel were killed by this divine plague that God brought on them for retribution against what David had done. And David sees the angel of the Lord hovering in space above Mount Moriah. And at that time, in 1 Chronicles 21, a Jebusite, that would be a native to the area of Jerusalem, owns that land. His name is Ornan and something like Aru Anna in 2 Samuel. Same guy. 
It's his threshing floor. Mount Moriah is his threshing floor. And the angel of the Lord is standing above there, and David is commanded to build an altar on the threshing floor, which is Mount Moriah, and God sends fire just like in the days of Elijah. God sends fire from heaven and consumes the offering to say, the sacrifice is accepted, the plague is ended as the angel of the Lord met David at Mount Moriah, this very same spot. Later on, Second Chronicles 3.1 makes very clear, when Solomon builds the temple, guess where it's built? It's built on Mount Moriah. So all the sacrifices that are given in the Solomonic temple, they take place at the same place Isaac was being offered in this morning's story in Genesis 22. And this site later, even after the destruction of the first temple, when the Jews returned from Babylon, the second temple built in the same place there on Mount Moriah. So that the temple Jesus walked in in his day was this same place, Mount Moriah. The second temple built by the returnees and then expanded and enlarged under Herod the Great was the same place Isaac was being offered here is where Jesus spoke and stood and taught in the temple of his day. And that was true until 70 AD when the general Titus of Rome destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And today, if you go to Jerusalem, Mount Moriah is covered by the Temple Mount, it's a large, it's a man-made flat area on which the Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock, stands today. That is Mount Moriah, same place. So that just geographically, this place that this story occurs, this is very intentional. God brings this place up again and again. One of the other reasons I bring this up, when you see how intentional God is in the Scriptures, it's not like any of this is happenstance. You know, sometimes people read their Bibles, especially non-Christians, and they just tell you, it doesn't mean much, it's of little value, it's chaos and confusion, or I don't understand it or whatever. You read things like this and you get the picture. Nope. God's plan, it's right on time. He knows exactly what He's doing. He's using the same place time after time. These individuals weren't making this happen. This was God at work behind the scenes saying, this place is important, I'm going to come back again and again. So Mount Moriah looms large in God's plan of redemption. The place I want us to hang our hat though this morning, just as far as the theme and our thoughts here go, point two on your, your study sheet there, verses six through 10. As I said, Genesis 22, one of the clearest pictures in all the Bible, a living demonstration of what God the Father did through his gift, his offering of his son, the Lord Jesus, on display for us in this chapter through the people Abraham and Isaac. And I want to look first at the role that Abraham plays here. Let me be careful when I say this, but when we talk about redemption, almost exclusively as Christians, we talk about Jesus' death on the cross. And whatever you hear me say, I am not diminishing in any way Jesus' death on the cross. This chapter, though, Genesis 22, it's less about Isaac than it is Abraham. Abraham's the center and he's the focus. And when we think about Jesus' death on the cross, I think one of the points that we fail to take account of is that God the Father also bore a huge, immeasurable cost because the provision of the Lamb was His to give. Jesus is our sin bearer on the cross. He's the Lamb. But somebody had to provide the Lamb. 
And this story, Abraham is providing Isaac his son. But the reality that this expands to, the larger ultimate reality, is that it was God the Father who provided the lamb that mattered. And so it was at God the Father's cost that Jesus would come in the incarnation to hang on a cross. It was the loss of God the Father. It was the cost God the Father bore also in providing His Son to be the sin bearer. And I think that's something that we often lose sight of. So look at Abraham in verse 6. Abraham the father lays the wood for the fire on Isaac's back. So it's the father in this story who is intentionally loading his son down with the wooden weight that the son will then lay on the place of his offering. This is all done by Abraham, by the father, to Isaac. So as Isaac in this story is carrying the woody weight for his offering up the mountain, he's following his father's will. This is what Abraham is doing. Abraham is providing Isaac. And if you look at this story or if you extrapolate to the greater reality that it points to, God the Father is the one who is giving up His Son for us. And when you see this imagery of Jesus bearing the cross on His back up Mount Moriah, I'll point this out in just a second in John's Gospel, it's God the Father's will that this is occurring, that His Son is carrying the weight of the sacrifice that He Himself will hang on once He gets up to that hill. Now, Moriah and Calvary or Golgotha are not quite the same place. They're both in what we would call Greater Jerusalem, but they're sort of catty-corner from each other. Moriah on the southeast, what we would call Golgotha, or the traditional side of the crucifixion to the northwest from there. But it's the same general area, the same place, Greater Jerusalem. You see both of these stories occurring. So it's God the Father who's giving up His only Son in the Incarnation and in the crucifixion. And he's giving his son up for someone else's benefit. Remember, Abraham's acting to obey God. And God the Father giving Jesus isn't for his benefit, it's for ours. The most famous verse in the Bible, as a matter of fact, John 3.16 points out that this was the gift, the costly gift was given by God the Father. I think that's interesting. It's not that Jesus, Jesus can't be done away with in this story. We don't mean to. But we often lose that detail. So in John 3.16, God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's what the Father did. It cost the Father our redemption, the most costly offering in the history of the universe. There's no greater price than deity, than the eternal Son of God dying for our sins. There could be no greater cost. Nothing could be more valuable than, than that or more costly than that. And that's what God the Father did for us in offering us His Son, seen through Abraham and Isaac. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul says there, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Again, it's the Father who's initiating this. God the Father's will to make Jesus our sin bearer. And last, in a great passage out of Isaiah, and Isaiah sees uh, Israel's Messiah in his day, seven to eight hundred years before the incarnation, 
he sees the Messiah both in his glory, but also in what's called the suffering servant phase. And Jesus in the incarnation, that's the suffering servant. And so when we read Isaiah 53, we're reading about Israel's Messiah, but as the sufferer, as the replacement for us. And there it says in verse 10, but the Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush him, the Messiah, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. It was God's good pleasure. It was God's will, God the Father's will, that Jesus, the suffering servant, would bear our sins in his body on the tree. That was what God the Father was up to. So the cost of our redemption, borne by Jesus on the cross in his body, but the provision of that sacrifice felt by the one who gave his son, God the Father. So Abraham, a very, very clear picture of what God the Father would later do. If you're a parent... These, uh, these illustrations in the scriptures, they're supposed to engage our emotions. You know, if you tell somebody just a fact, they may lose it. It may hold no value. You want to get a hold of someone's emotion. If you're a parent, how would you feel about taking one of your children and committing them to some gruesome death for the benefit of people who don't know you and don't care about them, about your child? Because that's what God the Father does. When we were his enemies, when we were alienated from God, that's when he sends Jesus. That's when God gave his son. When God loved the world, the world didn't love him and didn't care about his son. And if you're a parent and you can put yourself in God's shoes about would I take one of my kids for someone who doesn't know me and doesn't care about my kids and lay them down in some gruesome death, this picture of Abraham and Isaac is supposed to engage our emotions so that we get some sense, some visceral sense of what it costs God to send His Son for our redemption. When Jesus cries out on the cross, you see this in both Mark and Matthew, when He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus hangs six hours on the cross. The first three, we take it physical pain, gruesome, very difficult. But the second three, God the Father withdraws His presence from God the Son on the cross. Now Jesus cries out, Father, Father, God, God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is feeling the loss. This is a member of the Trinity who's never been disengaged from the other two members of the Trinity. And yet when he becomes sin for us on the cross, God the Father withdraws his fellowship. And Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? I know you've left because now I'm sin." And you can't abide sin, and I'm paying for the sins of the world. But guys, the flip side of this is, who else is separated? God the Father is separated from His Son, the Son of His love, the joy of His heart and His life. All that He counted most dear, God the Father has left. Jesus on the cross for us. So when we read Genesis 22, this is about what God the Father was willing to do for us out of love. Give His Son... His one and only Son for us. The cost to God the Father for our redemption was incalculable. It was the life of His Son, the Lord Jesus. We can't even get there. We just try and sort of estimate a little bit some of the emotion that God felt, what it cost Him to make His Son sin on our behalf. 
the comparison in this chapter is, is just point by point, Abraham and the father, but it's certainly true also of Isaac and Jesus. You look at verse 6, Isaac carries the wood to his own sacrifice. Verse 9, Isaac lies bound to the wood of the offering. And by the way, we know Isaac is a young strapping guy. He's at least a teenager. He's big enough and strong enough to carry a heavy wooden load up a hill. And isn't it interesting that just as in the first three verses of this chapter, when we sort of would expect that Abraham would complain to God about what he's demanding of him, and Abraham's silent, you see the same thing here. There's no complaining. There's no utterance of complaint. Isaac could have got up. He probably could have run away from Abraham if he didn't do anything else. He could have resisted him physically. None of that's recorded. Isaac here in this picture is all trust. He's all silence. He's all acquiescence to the will of his father, even to the point of death. You know, when Abraham started tying him up, the lights would start coming on for him, wouldn't they? And if he was want, wanted to do something, he had time to do that before he's laid down tied up on that wood, the wood that he's brought up the hill. But he doesn't. It's all silence. It's all a commitment of himself over to his father. And you see exactly the same thing, don't you, in Jesus' crucifixion. The synoptic gospels don't uh, refer to this, but in John nineteen seventeen. It says, they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, called in Hebrew Golgotha. So you got the same picture of Jesus bearing the wooden beam of the cross. The synoptics tell us he is so bloodied and so probably dehydrated and so tired already, he can't carry it the whole way. So the synoptics tell us that they recruited Simon to help him get the rest of the way. But John's gospel makes it very clear. We see, just like Isaac, Jesus bearing the weight of the wood up the hill to his place of sacrifice. And for Jesus, of course, the weight of the wood would be bad physically. And he's been scourged, he's bleeding, he's severely wounded, he's dehydrated. That would be tough, for sure. Not minimizing that at all. But that says nothing about the radical weight of the sins of the world that he then takes on in that last three hours on the cross. So exactly the same imagery. Back to Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says of Jesus, Isaiah does, looking forward about 700 years to the suffering servant, it says there, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to slaughter. He was like a sheep silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. That's exactly the picture you see of Isaac in Genesis 22. It's exactly the picture you see of Jesus on the cross. You see the same thing in 1 Peter 2.23. He was being reviled. He didn't revile in return. He was suffering, but he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, Genesis 22, one of the clearest pictures in all the Bible of what God the Father was doing in providing the Lord Jesus for our sins. The third point I want to look at here is just the fact that verses 11 through 14 talk about God provides. In verse 7 and 8, they're going up the hill and Isaac says, gosh, Dad, we've got the fire and we've got the knife. 
but where's the lamb? Where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? And Father Abraham replies and says, well, God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. We're not entirely sure what Abraham meant when he said this to young Isaac. He may have been nicely deferring the truth that, Isaac, you're the offering. You're the one God's provided. We know again from Hebrews and from Romans that Abraham believed God would bring Isaac back from the dead if he needed to, to keep the promises made to Abraham through his son Isaac. We're not sure exactly what he meant. Or Abraham may have thought that God will provide literally a substitute, as of course he does in this story, and we'll both come back. We'll worship together, he says to the servants, implying in the plural we'll come back together. We're not entirely sure, but the key here is that God will provide. Of that, Abraham was absolutely sure. And so he calls Mount Moriah Jehovah-Jireh, or Yahweh sees, or Yahweh provides. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. At this place, I know this, God's going to provide the lamb. God's going to provide the ultimate lamb. So when you get to the New Testament and John's gospel and John 1, I love when John the Baptist looks at his relative Jesus coming on the scene down there in the south. And in John 1, 29, seeing Jesus walking on the scene, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate lamb. Again, not entirely sure what Abraham's got in his mind when he says this, but it's the truth that God ultimately would provide the ultimate lamb. Abraham has a substitute, a God-provided ram caught there in the shrubs. So the angel of the Lord calls from heaven, don't kill Isaac. He sees the ram and it says that he offered up for a burnt offering the ram in the place of his son. The ram is sacrificed in the place of his son. And this is an important theological point. We won't spend a lot of time here. But just to say, the scripture, our redemption is based on the fact that God accepted a substitute for us. If God wasn't into substitutionary atonement, we would all die for our sins. But God says something like this, there's a debt that's due. And either you can pay me, or if you can find someone else to pay me, I'll accept that too. But the debt must be paid. There's no getting around that. And here, it's, it's telling and it's important that it says the ram was offered in the place of his son. The ram is a substitute for young Isaac. Just as Jesus is a substitute ultimately for us. If we've got to pay for our own sin, we're all goners. But if God will accept a substitute, there's hope as long as a substitute is available. And so you've got a ram here that takes the place of Isaac. And just think very briefly in Israel's history, at the first Passover, every family's got a a lamb, don't they, that they slay. And the lamb in the Passover takes the place of the firstborn of every Jewish family. The lamb takes the place of the firstborn. So that you remember, if there was a house where a lamb had not been slain and the blood applied to the door, the firstborn lost his life. 
The lamb was a substitute for the firstborn there. And you look at all the offerings in the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the temples. Guys, every one of those, Hebrews makes this clear in the New Testament, not one of those offerings covered a sin, a human sin. Not one. Never paid for a sin. Not one. Every one of those lambs, bulls, goats, pigeons, doves that was ever offered was always meant to point to the Lamb of God that God would Himself provide. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats can never cover our sins, can never cleanse our conscience, can never atone for us. But Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, He's the one that can come in, lay His life down for us, and by His blood cover our sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Digressing from this key theme again, Stay with me for just a little bit. Verses 11 and 12, just because it's here, I want to mention it. The angel of the Lord in this story is an important figure. Like Moriah geographically, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a very important figure. And you'll see him come up again and again. And the angel of the Lord started in our stories back talking to Miss Hagar. The angel of the Lord appeared to her. Now notice, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham... I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord is speaking as Yahweh. That to not withhold Isaac from the angel of the Lord was to not withhold Isaac from me, from God, from Yahweh. And we understand in these appearances in the Old Testament, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is God the Son before the incarnation, before he's known as Jesus to us. This is the same person of the Trinity in the Old Testament showing up on the scene saying, don't kill the boy, and there's the ram instead. And isn't this interesting? God the Son before the incarnation coming to Mount Moriah saying, don't kill the lad, take the substitute instead, and he himself is ultimately the substitute. And it's the angel of the Lord there in David's story that at the same spot, a thousand years later, stops the plague, same place, stops the plague and an offering is made and peace is restored. God the Father offering God the Son. And in this picture you see Jesus both in the person of Isaac Then you also see him in the ram who substitutes for Isaac, but you also see him a third time in the angel of the Lord. So Jesus displayed here in Genesis 22 in spades, if you will. Two points of application. The first is this, just to ask yourself the question, have you seriously, just between you and the Lord, have you seriously accepted the most costly gift in the world, which is the price of your redemption. You know, in a group this big, it's pretty much a given. There are people here who are not yet sure. You're not sure. If you died today, where would you go and why? I was reading in Hebrews in my quiet time this last week, and in chapter 2, verse 3, the writer says this, How shall we escape God's judgment if we neglect so great a salvation. And that is, the writer to Hebrews is contemplating Jesus, his divinity, his deity, and all that he did for us. And as he's thinking about it, 
And he's writing to people who are tempted to fall away from Christ and to go back to Judaism, which he says later, they're just forms, they're shadows, they're not the reality, they're not the substance. And the writer there says, guys, if you neglect this costly great salvation, how can you escape God's judgment? The truth is that God's gift to the world in the incarnation and crucifixion of His Son cuts both ways. That is, on the plus side, on the upside, the part that really matters to us most is that it displays God's love for us fully. God could not love us anymore. He's expressed that fully in the incarnation and Jesus' crucifixion. His love could not be more costly than it is. He could give no greater cost, no greater gift for your life and mine than that of His Son. And He loves the world, that means us, so much He gives us His Son. So that if we believe in Him, even, John says, believe on His name, we have eternal life. Life to the ages, life that never ends. But guys, the flip side is this. If you reject that costly, costly gift, There's no escape from God's judgment. If you talk to others and they say Christians are bigoted and narrow-minded and small, I'm glad to say, yes, we are, if you phrase it this way, that Jesus said there's no other way to the Father than through Him. And God has demonstrated His love for us in giving us Christ on one hand, but guys, He's also demonstrated His commitment to judge unrighteousness in judging Jesus on the cross. So how can I possibly think that I can stand before a holy, righteous God who's given His Son for me, but whose Son I reject and say, God, but I'm okay with you on my own merit? There is not a chance in hell that that will occur. Not a chance, ever. You know, God knows that we're sinners, guys, uh, all of us. Best to the worst, we are sinners. We blow it in tons of ways. Some of them we can see amongst each other, and otherwise they're just between us and God. But we are sinners. But you know what? In the incarnation and the crucifixion, God has taken care of the sin issue. So that the ultimate insult to God is not that we sin, because He knows we do. He knows the stuff we're made of, it says in Psalms. And Lord, if you mark iniquities, who could stand? Nobody, because God knows. So God is not ultimately insulted, if you will, by our sins. He knows it. It's a given. This is the ultimate insult. To reject God's costly gift of salvation in His Son. Sin is not the issue since Jesus has come to the earth. Jesus is the issue. And God so loved the world that you and me that He paid for us with the life of His own Son. And guys, if we reject that costly substitutionary sacrifice for us, there is no escape from God's judgment. No escape. No place to run. No place to hide. So I say as seriously as as I can. Today's the day, Hebrew says. Today if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Today if you hear Christ's voice, if you see in the Father providing His Son for your sins and for mine, you say, yes, Lord, I'll take that. And your sins are forgiven in Christ. You become God's child. You're going to live with God forever. There's an eternal party that's going to be thrown. Psalm 16 talks about joy forever. 
pleasures for always. That's your future and mine. But the ultimate insult to a holy and loving God who's given his son for us is to reject the offering. Most costly gift ever made, ever could be made. The second point of application would be this for us. Most of us here I know have trusted Christ. We know who we belong to. We know where we're going when we die. But let me ask you this. How much does the fact and the knowledge and the emotional reality of God's love for you and me, how much does it impact the way I think and feel and see and interact in this world? You know, if I tell you on one hand God loves you, it's been said sometimes so tritely that it's just like, it's glib, yeah, God loves you. Be warm and be filled and head on down the road. God loves you. What does that mean? Guys, God loves me. God loves you. That's the most important thing in the universe for us to know. God loves us. And that removes us from a small little life that I think as Christians, most of us are still living because we don't get a hold of this one thought. John 3, 16, God loves us. And that love transforms our relationship with him and it's meant to transform us from the inside out. Knowing that God loves me is supposed to provide a new foundation for every element of my life and your life as a Christian. And how many of us are living small little lives? We don't forgive ourselves. We don't forgive others. We don't see God. We don't love. We don't pray. Because we don't really understand that God really, really loves us. That God loves us. That transforms everything about us. And if as Christians we can just lay hold of that truth again, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's the foundation for a life that speaks volumes to the world. That's the kind of transformed life God means us to know and experience. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that anyone who would believe in him would have everlasting life. Wouldn't perish, not even the thought of it. Going to live with me forever. Don't insult the Lord in the costly sacrifice He's made for your soul in rejecting the costly gift, costliest gift ever, in the person of the Lord Jesus, dying on Mount Moriah, near Mount Moriah, there in Jerusalem, for your sins and mine. And as Christians, guys, we've got to lay hold of this. This is the Christmas season. We're going to be ta- saying Merry Christmas and God bless you and all this stuff. Listen, we've got to get down to reality and brass tacks. And if the incarnation, if the costly love of God doesn't move us, if that doesn't get a hold of our heart and our emotions and our minds, it's just all glib. It's trite and it's shallow. And God wants us to be transformed by the knowledge that he loves us, he gave his son for us. And that's supposed to change the way we see him and the world, ourselves and each other. Father, God, would your spirit wrestle just with anyone here, just as you wrestled with Jacob until they, they uh, lovingly acquiesce to your offer of eternal life through your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, as those of us here who, who know that love, at least a little, in the person of your son... Lord God, would you help us? Would you take the blinders from our eyes? Would you soften our hearts? Would you free us from enslavement to small-minded living and to a a view of you that reduces you to a policeman or a crossing guard 
Lord, when you've given your Son for us. Lord, help us to be transformed by the real knowledge that you love us, that we are in your family forever, that you have reproduced Jesus' life in us so that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and you are delighted to call us your children. And Father, this Christmas season, would you enlighten us and would you provide through us a light to the Gentiles we live in and live among, Lord? Would you shine the true knowledge of Jesus Christ to those around us? Would you so transform us, Lord, that we are the Isaacs of this world? We are your joy and your laughter on this planet. We are Jesus to those around us, Lord. Transform us by the knowledge that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for us. In Jesus' name, amen.